the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. In this hour, we'll talk with Alan Ayler. He's the author of How to Make Big Decisions Wisely, a biblical and scientific guide to healthier habits, less stress, a better career, and much more. He'll be joining us later this hour. In the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Lois Anderson, Executive Director of Oregon Right to Life. As you probably know, the Oregon legislature is in session. They have 35 days to do whatever it is they're going to do. And among the uh, bills being considered is one having to do with um, abortion uh, and uh, children who survive the procedure. We'll talk about that, as well as the Oregon Right to Life conference that's coming up Later this month, we'll talk with Maureen Ferguson. She's with the Catholic Association. We'll talk about what's happening in Washington. Uh, There's an upcoming pro-life vote in the Senate on fetal pain and whether or not uh, once pain, uh, the possibility of pain is demonstrated in uh, children in utero, if that should have an impact on uh, abortion. There's going to be a vote in the Senate. We'll talk more about that and a new study out of the UK when she joins us later in the five o'clock hour. First, to look at some of the day's headlines, the Democrats showdown on Wednesday night in Las Vegas repeatedly put former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg and his uh, primary rivals crosshairs as the surging billionaire made his debate stage debut. But the event quickly expanded into an all-out melee and was easily the most aggressive debate of the nomination season to date. It was debate number nine. There's another one next week, number 10. As each of the 2020 presidential candidates took sharp and often personal shots at one another. Well, the fight started out uh, white hot when in her first turn at the microphone, Senator Elizabeth Warren asserted she would support whoever wins the nomination, but warned that Democrats take a huge risk if we just substitute one arrogant billionaire for another, end quote. She said the field is running against somebody who calls women fat um, broads and horse-faced lesbians. And no, I'm not talking about Donald Trump. I'm talking about Mayor Bloomberg. Uh, That specific reference, she didn't link to a particular season or event. In another explosive moment, attendees erupted in the hall when Warren called on Bloomberg to release women from nondisclosure agreements they've signed concerning their civil complaints that he harassed them in the workplace. Well, after a disappointing fourth place finish in New Hampshire, Warren was particularly combative as she tangled with multiple rivals in a bid to distinguish herself once more ahead of um, Saturday's Nevada caucuses. So the contest continues. Former National Security Advisor John Bolton and Susan Rice engaged in a sometimes tense debate over Russia and President Trump's impeachment trial in front of a crowd of about 1,500 people Wednesday in Nashville, Tennessee. The pair came together for a lecture series titled Defining U.S. Global Leadership at Vanderbilt University two weeks after the Senate acquitted the president without subpoenaing Bolton to testify. He said he didn't expect the Senate to vote against having him testify. Uh, Rice, uh, citing security clearance procedures for her own book, said she couldn't imagine withholding my testimony with or without a subpoena or going public with information if she thought it was of national importance. But Bolton insisted his testimony would not have mattered, even though he seemed to suggest otherwise. 
uh, while they were in the process. People can argue about what I should have said and what I should have done. He said, I would uh, bet you a, a dollar right here and now my testimony would have made no difference to the ultimate outcome, end quote. He added, I sleep at night because I have followed my conscience. Well, two passengers from the quarantined Diamond Princess cruise ship docked off Yokohama, Japan, have died of the coronavirus, Japan's health ministry said on Thursday. The Japanese man and woman, both in their 80s, reportedly had existing chronic diseases. They were the first among the ship's passengers to die from the disease, according to officials. Both passengers were removed from the ship last week and hospitalized. Japan now has three coronavirus-related deaths. The 621 confirmed coronavirus cases among the cruise ship's 3,700 passengers represent the largest outbreak outside of China. The Diamond Princess has been under a two-week quarantine since the 5th of February. And President Trump slammed Michael Bloomberg at his Phoenix rally, taking place at the same time that the debate was taking place, pushing MAGA message during the Democrat debate. That's Make America Great Again, of course. And the president has taken 2020, uh, the lead in 2020, 52% to 48% of all the Democrats, um, according to the Washington Examiner. And Denmark is telling Bernie Sanders it's had enough of his socialist slurs. Hmm, you can find out more about that at Investors Business Daily. And the president has tapped U.S. Ambassador to Germany Richard Grinnell as the nation's top intel official. John Rood, top Defense Department official who contradicted Trump on Ukraine, is the latest to be invited to leave after the impeachment saga. And Michael Bloomberg, Sanders, uh, they squabbled over medical records during the debate, as well as, well, virtually everything else. A group of Covington Catholic high school students are suing nine media personalities over tweets and commentary about the incident at Lincoln Memorial last year. And a federal appeals court ruled on Wednesday it was unconstitutional to force Florida felons to first pay off their financial obligations before registering to vote, citing against state Republican lawmakers who imposed the restriction Last year and Pennsylvania, the diocese there is facing more abuse claims uh, filed for bankruptcy today. On this day in history, 1962, astronaut John Glenn becomes the first American to orbit the Earth as he flies aboard Project Mercury's Friendship 7 spacecraft. The craft circles the globe three times in a flight lasting four hours, 55 minutes, 23 seconds before splashing down safely in the Atlantic Ocean, 800 miles southeast of Bermuda. On this day in history, 1792, President George Washington signs an act creating the United States Post Office Department. 1862, William Wallace Lincoln, the 11-year-old son of President Abraham Lincoln and First Lady Mary Todd Lincoln, dies at the White House, apparently of typhoid fever. And on this day in history, 1905, the U.S. Supreme Court in Jacobson versus Massachusetts upholds 7-2 to two compulsory vaccination laws intended to protect the public's health. Still haven't resolved that question. And on this day in history, 1907, President Theodore Roosevelt signs an Immigration Act that excludes, and I'm quoting, idiots, imbeciles, free, uh, feeble-minded persons, epileptics, insane people from being admitted to the United States. Don't even use those words anymore. 2003, a fire sparked a um, pyrotechnics breakout uh, during a concert by the group Great White at the Station Nightclub in West Warwick, Rhode Island, killing 100 people and injuring about 200 others. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later in the program, we're going to talk with uh, Alan Ayler. His book is uh, titled How to Make Big Decisions Wisely. It's a biblical and scientific guide 
to healthier habits, less stress, a better career, and much more. Um, Dr. Ayler is a professor and dean of, at Barnett um, College of Ministry and Theology in Southeastern University, a former pastor, ordained minister with the Assemblies of God. He's a lifelong student of the science of decision-making. He'll join us later this hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 20 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. President Trump is moments away from a rally in Colorado. Well, Elizabeth Warren shamed Mike Bloomberg for allegedly allegedly calling women fat broads. Amy Klobuchar asked Pete Buttigieg if he was calling her dumb. Bloomberg shut down Bernie Sanders by quipping that the best-known socialist in the country happens to be a millionaire with three houses. The Democrats' showdown on Wednesday night in Las Vegas repeatedly put Bloomberg in his uh, primary uh, rivals crosshairs as the surging billionaire made his debut stage, or rather debate debut. Uh, but the uh, conflagration quickly expanded into an all-out melee and easily the most aggressive debate of the nomination season to date. The fight started over white-hot uh, issues in her first turn to the microphone. Warren uh, pointed out that Bloomberg has not always been very flattering to women. She said the uh, field is running against somebody who calls women, and I won't repeat all of that. Well, as some attendees uh, cheered, she added, we're not going to win if we have a nominee who has a history of hiding his tax returns, of harassing women, and of supporting racist policies like redlining and stop and frisk. Bloomberg strongly denied supporting redlining or systematically denying services to certain neighborhoods. A Warren, after a disappointing fourth place finish in New Hampshire, was particularly combative, trying to uh, see if she could surge once again. Um, the audience continued to boo Bloomberg as he repeatedly declined to waive the agreement on stage, um, these non-disclosure agreements. During that discussion, even if uh, after Biden yelled that it would be easy to do, Bloomberg also said not uh, uh, didn't respond to Warren's request that he specify exactly how many non-disclosure agreements he had arranged. With calls to release his tax returns, he drew more jeers by saying it takes a long time and that he can't go to TurboTax and that he would be releasing them in a few weeks. We've heard that before. Amy Klobuchar mused, referring to President Trump. Well, they haven't heard it from him, from Mr. Bloomberg, but nonetheless, Sanders, meanwhile, warned that Bloomberg couldn't be elected because he wouldn't be able to assemble a diverse coalition of voters. He also called it immoral that Bloomberg had vast wealth while homelessness remained a problem. A debate moderator then asked a pointed question, Mayor Bloomberg, should you exist? Mr. Bloomberg had a po- uh, had policies in New York City to stop and frisk that went after African-American and Latino people in an outrageous way, Sanders suggested. I don't think there's any chance of the senator beating President Trump, Bloomberg uh, responded flatly. Well, it went on uh, back and forth, and some suggest the winner of that debate wasn't anyone on the stage, but it was, in fact, President Trump. It was interesting. All of the attention was focused, or at least most of it, focused on uh, Bloomberg when he's not the front runner. Uh, there is a caucus coming up on Saturday. There's the Super Tuesday coming up early next month, and that will whittle the numbers down in relatively short order. Uh, as I mentioned, um, the ninth Democratic debate uh, uh, took place just a couple of days ago, but the preliminary figures say that this face-off, the first one featuring Mike Bloomberg, perhaps out of curiosity, was uh, uh, very popular among 
viewers. Um, they delivered a big audience for NBC in the early ratings figures on Wednesday. Nielsen's fast national ratings have the debate at 10 million viewers for the broadcast network, a number that will almost certainly grow with adjustments to the live telecast. The debate also aired on Telemundo and MSNBC. The story will be updated when more complete ratings information becomes available in future. But the preliminary numbers were for at least for NBC, perhaps not for some of the other networks. Uh, encouraging. Meanwhile, CBS News has announced the uh, moderators for the 10th Democratic presidential debate in South Carolina on the 25th, again next week, uh, the last time the candidates will face off before the state's critical primary. CBS Evening News anchor and managing editor Nora O'Donnell and CBS This Morning co-host Gail King will moderate the debate. Joining uh, Joined in questioning by Face the Nation moderator and senior foreign affairs correspondent Margaret Brennan, Chief Washington correspondent Major Garrett, and 60 Minutes correspondent Bill Whitaker. CBS News is co-hosting the debate with the Congressional Black Caucus Institute in Charleston. Um, Charleston, South Carolina, beginning 8 p.m. That's Eastern time, so 6 p.m. our time on CBS stations. That debate will be streamed live on a number of stations and the streaming service, the 24-7 for CBS News, and appear uh, in its entirety uh, on BET, a subsidiary of Viacom CBS. Twitter is a debate partner, and voters can use the hashtag DemDebate to submit questions that might be posed to the candidates. Again, that's all coming up. On the 25th, which, of course, is next week in South Carolina, just before their contest. Well, Democrats who were initially skeptical of the prospect for a brokered convention now see it as likelier scenario with eight candidates still battling it out for the nomination. As the Nevada caucus approaches, strategists say it's becoming clear that none of the Democratic candidates are likely to win the majority of the delegates before the convention in July. Still early days, but Democratic strategist Eddie Vale said that he was once extremely skeptical of a brokered convention. But lately, particularly with the Democratic Party requiring a proportional allocation of delegates, it's definitely uh, seeming like it could happen. One Democrat who worked on two campaigns for former President Obama called a brokered convention the biggest nightmare Democrats can imagine. It certainly wouldn't be the first, and they've uh, chosen... Uh, delegates like this before, or at least the nominee like this before. But these are different times. If you want to see a complete terrible show, we'll just put it that way, tune in to the brokered convention, the Democrats said. Well, another who worked on the former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign said this is currently heading for a convention fight at this rate. Well, if the number of candidates scoring in the double digits that are splitting delegates continue to do so through Super Tuesday... And, of course, beyond, it's just math, unless all of the uh, sudden a number of candidates drop out. That's not likely either. And while campaigns uh, say that they're focused on the upcoming primaries, they're quietly thinking more about building out their teams in the event that there is a brokered convention, and it takes shape, according to sources on various campaigns. The reason most candidates seem unlikely to suspend their campaign before Super Tuesday. So we'll see what happens moving forward. But again, Super Tuesday will tell the tale, and that will at least traditionally thin the crowd. This might be an exception this time around. Well, a new study here in the U.S. uh, out yesterday finds that heart attack patients who turn 80 within the previous two weeks were less likely to get bypass surgery than those who were two weeks shy of that birthday, even though the age difference is less than a month. 
Well, that was in response to this, the quip, 80 is now the new 70. Well, apparently it's not. Age may bias heart care, according to this study. Well, guidelines do not limit the operation after a certain age, but doctors may mentally classify people as being in their 80s and suddenly much riskier than those in their 70s, the study's leader points out. The reason may be uh, left-digit bias or the tendency to focus on the first number when uh, you go to a store and the item is four ninety nine, you're more likely to buy it than if it's five dollars. But there's uh, no similar effect with prices four fifty uh, versus four fifty one. So the digit on the left creates a bias. Well, that penny matters more when you're crossing a threshold to a new dollar amount. Well, it poses a serious concern in health care. And although a less invasive treatment, an artery opening stent procedure, is often the treatment for a heart, uh, heart attack, bypass surgery is preferred when many arteries are affected or in some other situations. So 80 is not, as we've heard some of the candidates who, if they succeed in serving their first or second term as president, will reach their 80s. It's not the new 70, particularly if there are heart issues. Well, President Trump uh, yesterday at a rally in Phoenix um, took shots at fellow billionaire Michael Bloomberg at the same time the former New York City mayor was in Las Vegas taking fire from fellow Democrats during his first presidential debate. Uh, Trump uh, took a shot at MSNBC, which televised the debate, calling the left-leaning network MSDNC saying it's worse than CNN and they're uh, all pretty bad. He said to a round of boos, referring uh, certain to the networks. The president also hit Bloomberg for buying his candidacy, as the president put it. Many Mike, as he's taken to calling him, has spent $411 million so far. Um, he referred to Tom Steyer in an unflattering way. We call him impeachment Steyer. He spent $210 million and look where that got him. I think he got one third of 1% in Iowa. I never even heard of him. He went on to say he added that Hillary Clinton spent three times more than we did and lost. Well, he went on from there. Uh, that was in Phoenix. And right now in Colorado, the president is engaged in another political rally. GOP operative Roger Stone was sentenced to more than three years in prison today after days of drama ensnaring career prosecutors, the attorney general and the president over how severe his punishment should be for making false statements to investigators during the Trump Russia probe. U.S. District Court Judge Amy Berman Jackson, while taking a firm stance uh, toward Stone in the courtroom, perhaps saying more than she should have as a judge, also said the up to nine years originally sought by federal prosecutors was, in fact, excessive. Her sentence of 40 months in prison was considerably less than that, yet far more than the probation sought by his defense and certainly tough enough to keep speculation alive about a possible pardon from President Trump. In court, she repeatedly made clear she holds Stone responsible for his circumstances as his lawyer sought leniency. The judge is also expected to be considering whether or not to... Uh, call a mistrial and for there to be a retrial given new disclosures about at least two members of the jury in that case. We'll continue to follow the story. <coughs> Up next, we'll talk with Alan Ayler. He's the author of How to Make Big Decisions Wisely. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 36 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, our decisions, according to our next guest, determine our future, our lives. If we invest in a company, for example, that goes bankrupt and you lose your life savings, that makes a big difference. Say the wrong thing in an interview and you miss the job of a lifetime. Make no decision and you miss every opportunity. In today's rapidly changing world, the cost of poor decisions, or no decision at all, is 
higher than ever. In his latest book, How to Make Good Decisions Wisely, author and scholar Alan Ayler He lays out a clear approach to making big decisions based on the Bible and recent discoveries in neuroscience and decision science. He presents a simple four-step process that can be followed to make any decision, any kind of decision, whether personal, professional, or relational. Making big decisions can rewrite your life, your career, your family, your church, business. A lot is at stake So you need to learn how to choose well. Well, Alan Ayler is a professor and dean of the Barnett College of Ministry and Theology at Southeastern University, a former pastor and ordained minister with the Assemblies of God. He is a lifelong student of the science of decision making. He joins us today to talk about his book, How to Make Big Decisions Wisely. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me, Georgie. Well, it's very interesting that there is a science of decision making. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, there is. Well, I discovered this. There's a whole field, a lot of people that study it and research it in the secular academic world, and a couple of schools of thought with that. One of them that looks at doing everything on a quantitative basis, it's called game theory, and looks Mm -hmm. at everything, trying to come up with some sort of numerical way to determine odds and outcomes, and so much of the business world is now bought off into that, but other people realize that more personal decisions happen in different ways, so there's a a lot of different schools uh, of thought that take a look at how do we decide as well as how do our brains work when we make different decisions. Now, in your um, uh, the foreword written by Leonard Sweet, he points out that so much of our lives is already chosen for us, our parents, our geography, our economics. That's why every choice we make needs to be a wise one. Uh, talk a little bit about the importance of making good decisions, a variety of different types of decisions that have an impact on the course our life will take the uh, depth and, and uh, quality of relationships that we're in and so on. Well, if people make a bad decision, like you are pointing out earlier, career decisions going to affect options in the future, financial decisions affect what we can do. Uh, we've all had friends who ended up getting seriously involved in the wrong relationship or the wrong business partnership and, and ended up paying a big price for them down the road. And a lot of times people pay big prices because they just go with their gut. It feels right at the time. You, know, you want to go with what you want and you don't think about the consequences that are involved. Or there's more to the story that you can't see at the beginning if you just make a quick decision. It's not always possible to have a lot of time to contemplate before a decision needs to be made. Uh, In the first part of your book, uh, it's titled Choosing Well, and you write about the challenge and opportunity of big decisions. Uh, How do we know when a decision has the potential to have such a big impact as opposed to those that if we get them wrong, isn't going to make that much difference? Well, I, I put a little grid in there. It's kind of like you imagine a screen that's going to catch the stuff that doesn't warrant the effort because I believe God designed our brains so that we make most of our decisions quickly, and that's good because we don't have enough time to agonize over every decision that we face. And so a lot of neuroscientists have discovered that the brains make quick decisions for a lot of things, but others that require conscious effort that we want to go through and take the time to consider all all that's at stake, where we've been, what does Scripture say about that. We we save the big decisions for that. So criteria you want to look at are, is this something that I've done before that's worked well in the past? 
like the old cliche, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So, okay, we don't have to worry about those things that don't have a lot at stake, not a lot of consequences there, or if it's really clear, already know what the Bible says. Yeah, I'm not going to cheat on my wife. That's clear. That's, that's a no brainer on that one. But when I get to things that I've never been there before, I'm dealing with new situations, new circumstances, a lot of things have changed and there's, there's a lot at stake and that can be anything like my future, my relationships, my well-being, the people I'm leading, if I'm in charge of an organization, uh, a corporation, a church, a ministry, whatever, I've, I've got to take a look at that now that I can see making a bad decision now could end up costing us a lot. So let me take the time to go through the process and seek God's wisdom and be intentional about what I'm looking to do. How important is seeking the counsel of others who may be able to inform my decision-making process? That's a, it's a pretty big part of the process as we, we go down the road. I, I, I lay out several different times and kinds of decisions that really do better when we get other people involved, and there's the right place in that. Of course, we can think of several examples from Scripture and other places where there was a leader who knew and had heard, like nobody else was with Moses when he saw the burning bush and heard from God, and, and nobody believed him, and yet he had heard from God. And so if he had listened to the rest of the Jewish leaders around him, uh, they would still be in slavery today. But no, he sometimes God's going to speak to us, we've got to act. But I find that that is not in the majority of cases. So we need to be listening, and God has given us the people around us to, to help us. You can look at the spiritual gifts that, that we see listed, like in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. Most of those require more than one person. We, we as Americans, we love to have this one-on-one relationship with God, which is great, but God also put us in a relationship with other people. So if... if if, if God gives a prophetic word, the word of prophecy is given from one person to give to somebody else, not for the prophet, but for the people who are going to hear that. And we see that speaking in tongues comes with the gift of interpretation so that somebody else can be there. And there's also value, like you're pointing out, in listening to wisdom from others. And so, so a key part of this, my second step, trying to catch God's story, is listening to the community of believers around us to see what they have to say. In addition to uh, discoveries in neuroscience and decision science, you uh, make reference to what the scripture has to say about wise decision making. And in this same section of the book, um, you write about how the Apostle Paul made decisions. Talk a bit about what we can learn from his example with regard to decision making. Yeah, let's... uh... I find that in the Christian world today, people tend to go to one camp or another on this issue of, does God speak to us? And, and some people will say, you know, God should be able to give you direction for every decision you make, and it's just a matter of listening and waiting, and you're going to hear from God. And then there's another side that says, no, those people are weird. No, God gave us the Bible. That's all we're going to need. And so a long time ago, I started studying the life of Paul, first in the book of Acts, but then also integrated the study of his letters as well, and, and to see, did, it, did that back up? Up one another, and what do we see in there? And the way Luke records Paul's decisions, and the way Paul records his own decisions in his letters and tells the church to make decisions, have an interesting mix of both uh, seeing God work miraculously in directions, sometimes in dreams or in visions, or Jesus appearing to Paul on the road to Damascus, 
But there's also specific wording that's used in there that Paul made up his own mind for a lot of decisions. And, and Paul went on acting out. In some cases, what I see happening is Paul was given his overall life mission to go out and, and plant churches and win disciples among the Jews and the Gentiles. And as he did that, sometimes God specifically spoke to him to tell him, this is where you're going to do it, this is how you're going to do it. But there's other times that he didn't have that clear direction, but he still had the overall mission, and so he figured it out, sometimes in partnership with the, the people on his team, sometimes just simply going down the road and stopping at the next town and, and starting a church there until he received some kind of direction otherwise. I guess interesting, when he was in, in Corinth, he was there for a while, and then he got a vision from Jesus encouraging him to stay longer there. It was like his pattern before had only been to stay for a few weeks in each city, but when he got there, then the Lord appeared and showed him and encouraged him, okay, I know you've been taken off all the time, don't do that anymore. And, and so if, if that's still true for us, if, for, if that was true for Paul, I should say, and he asked that to be true for the Church, then for our lives, we need to be open and, I believe, earnestly seeking God's leadership, but not held hostage in its absence, because the vast majority of Paul's instructions in the Bible that he wrote in his letters to the churches don't say, don't do anything until you hear from God. He doesn't say that. He said, do this, do that, do this, do that, obey these instructions, and oh, by the way, here's some spiritual gifts that might occur, and oh, by the way, leadership from the Holy Spirit is a part of the whole spiritual Christian journey. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation with Alan Ayler. His book is titled, How to Make Big Decisions Wisely, a Biblical and Scientific Guide to Healthier Habits, Less Stress, a Better Career, and much more. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Continuing my conversation with Alan Ayler. He is the author of How to Make Big Decisions Wisely. And who among us does not want to make big and small decisions well because they always have consequences? Um, you make a tere- uh, connection between decision making and story shaping as well as health. Can you explain that connection and how story shaping is an important element in making wise decisions? Yeah, thanks, Georgina. I use story shaping as the, the wording to describe the process if you want to make an intentional approach that I lay out the four steps, because we're all part of the story, the, but the story that we're a part of keeps going on. So we don't get to control a lot of the things. You don't get to control what family you're born into, what nation you are, what race you are, some of your your natural physical appearances, and some of the circumstances that you deal with. So because of that, you don't get to start writing a story from scratch. What you do, though, your decisions shape your story. They kind of shape the outcome. So I I start the process by the first step of reading the backstory. That is taking a look at all the factors that are at play that that affect this decision, that affect the circumstances that will maybe produce different outcomes as we go into that process. So that's why I use that. And the, the, the wording there is to give us just kind of an idea. You shape it because it will be different with, with your action, even if you can't fully control everything that happens there along the way. Now, in reading the backstory, are you referring to my story or as uh, the backstory of the opportunity that I'm considering or all of that? 
it, it, all of that depends on what it is. So if you're making a personal decision, certainly part of you is, is taking a look at that. Like if you're considering a job, you know, you, your gifts, are your gifts right for that? Are your talents right? Do you have the right education, the right experience that they're going to need for the job? But then you also look at the backstory of the job, things like, okay, how, is, how have the other people who've worked there, did they enjoy working at this place? You know, so many people just look at moving forward and they don't take time to do uh, a little bit of research to mm-hmm. find out. Yeah, you, you know, everybody else who worked there left within two months because it's a miserable place to work <laughs> and all you see is the paycheck. So taking some time to read the backstory can really help you avoid some bad decisions. Yeah, yeah. The next step you suggest is to catch God's story, to look for um, biblical commands and examples that might help inform your decision. Yes, yeah. That's uh, As Christians, we hold the Bible to be our authority. And so we don't want to take other things we may think of as God's leading. If they contradict Scripture, we don't want to go that direction. So if the Bible's clear about uh, something regarding our decision, it's clear about a lot of things. And we start with that, stories over. We do what the Bible says. But there are times that we can take a look at examples in Scripture that may not be a go therefore and do this or thou shalt or whatever, but we can take a look at the life of a Joseph or a Moses or a Jonah or a Peter or a Paul and, and see how they handle situations and look at the situations in our life and say, okay, is there something I can learn from this and apply in my own situation? The third thing you suggest in this uh, this process is to craft a new story. And that would include, of course, making a decision that would change the course of a relationship or perhaps a career. Uh, talk a bit about uh, that third step, crafting a new story. Yeah, right. So when you get to done with a second story of catching God's story, you may have caught God's story, maybe from Scripture, maybe from that sense of leadership of the Holy Spirit or uh, some sort of witness from the Christian community that, okay, this is it, you know what to do. But what I'm saying is sometimes that doesn't happen, and that's okay. Uh, you, you, you can go on. There are other things we can use to put into practice to help us make good decisions. And I see a lot of examples from the decision science world that I see also backed up in Scripture. There's times that the people in the Scriptures made decisions without having that clear, unmistakable guidance from God. And so I lay out a five-step process to walk through that. And the first one is to increase the number of options you're willing to look at. People tend to get stuck at one or the other, and it's either A or it's B, and we never realize there's C, D, E, F, G, all the way to Z, other options out there, and neither A nor B is a really good option, and sometimes we may not find the good option until we get down to letter K, and, and so we have to be willing to explore more, and there's a lot of different suggestions I give for that. Probably the most common one is brainstorming, but, but there are a lot of other ideas that we can do, kind of dreaming and getting input from other people and begin coming up with some ideas, but once we make that list, then we want to narrow it. It makes them like, why do you want to increase a list and then narrow it? Because, uh, again, sometimes that dreaming is going to get us beyond what we call our narrow framing, that limited just Mm -hmm. one or two options. Now I can begin to explore more, and I'm willing to look at some of the others. But then to weigh each of those is going to take more time. So I want to get it down to a manageable number, and it can be three, it can be seven, and maybe in some cases you are needing to look at 10 or 12 options. But you get them down there, and then you carefully evaluate those. You, you look at those, you look for quantitative measures, you 
study people who've attempted these in the past, taken a look at that. And as you do further study on each of those options, usually one or a couple are going to rise to the surface as these are really better. And, and then if, even if you have not yet narrowed it down to a single option yet, and you can go back to the chapter before uh, I start on the story shaping thing, I talk about these lenses that we look through to take a look at things uh, like our, our values. What do we truly, truly care about? Our ethics. What do we consider to be good and bad? Um, and, and then take a look at some of the other things there. What, what matters most is we uh, evaluate each of those decisions and ultimately make our decision. Of course, we're praying along the way. And what we may find is like uh, the apostle saw in Acts 15. And I love this passage because it, it started with a disagreement. You know, Paul was convinced that Gentile Christians didn't need to be circumcised to become Christians. Uh, and, and yet the Jewish believers from Jerusalem, they did. They had an argument. They got together, and they really walked through the whole process. They listened to the backstory of Paul's experiences, of Peter's experiences, of, of the perspectives of the Jewish leaders who felt like, no, 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 they got to get circumcised. And then once they did that, then they turned to try to catch God's story. They listened to Scripture, and then they wrestled through all of that stuff. And then at the end, James, who was leading that council in Jerusalem, makes this incredible statement as he writes the letter to the churches make on their decision. It seemed good to us and to the Holy Spirit. And in what they didn't have clearly in unity at the beginning of that meeting, they did by the end. They were in agreement with one another, and they had that sense of the touch of God. Yes, we know we've heard from God. And ideally, we get that by the time we make the decision, but sometimes we have to decide anyway, because, okay, it's in front of us. The, the day is now. I'm going to go. I'm going to make the best decision I possibly can, even if I don't have all the information. That fourth step in the process we've been talking about is to tell the news story. And I appreciate the the cautious approach that you suggest. For example, the chapters in that uh, that segment determine who needs to hear the story, be careful how you tell the story, make the story a reality, and then proofread. Talk a little bit about uh, that process of coming to a decision and moving forward. Right. So your decision you make is probably going to affect somebody else, unless you are living as a single individual on an island. When you make a decision, other people are going to be impacted. If you're married and you take a new job, guess what? It's going to impact your spouse, your kids if you have them. If you're leading an organization and you decide to to change your software provider, even that's going to affect people. So once you make the decision, you need to figure out who is it going to affect and then how do you communicate with them? And there's some ways of communicating things, especially when something's been controversial. Like you're in an organization and everybody's all happy with things the old way, but you as the leader can tell, eh, we're not winning this market thing. We're about to lose. We're, gonna, we're not going to exist as a corporation if we don't change what we do. But everybody's comfortable. You have to let them know. You have to think about how you're going to communicate to them to, to motivate them to change. And one of the best ways to do that is to start with the why. Like Simon Sinek says, you, you start with, here's what you need to know is at risk. And, and so they understand there. And then you speak to things that they value and that they care about. Show them how, even though you think you're comfortable now, here's how you're not going to have a job in the future. Or here's how what we, what we enjoy now isn't going to be there if we don't change. And then come up with some nice ways for them to understand the process. Uh, sometimes change is, is complicated. And, and to do a good job at change requires a, a very complex plan 
but we can't remember complex. It has to be simple and it has to be memorable. So coming up with some sort of a model, some pictures, maybe a, a metaphor or something to help people go get the aha. Yeah, I, yeah. Well, I tell you, we are out of time, but I would encourage our listeners to pick up the book to get the rest of the story, How to Make Big Decisions Wisely. Alan Ayler, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Georgine. Thanks for having me on your show. Appreciate it. By the way, the book is published by Zondervan. News and traffic up next. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Seven minutes after five o'clock, you're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. During this hour, we are going to talk with Lois Anderson. She is executive director of Oregon Right to Life. We're going to talk about the legislative session that's about halfway through and the piece of legislation that uh, would call upon lawmakers to provide care for those who survive an abortion in the state of Oregon. Lois will bring us up to date on that, as well as the Oregon Right to Life Conference. That, too, is coming up this month. Maureen Ferguson will also join us. She's with the Catholic Association. We'll talk about what's happening in Washington, an upcoming pro-life vote in the Senate, uh, having to do with fetal pain. Uh, We'll talk about the prospects of that succeeding and a new groundbreaking study that was released just recently from the U.K. In fact, one of the chief... um, uh, individuals who did the research uh, was a former associate of Planned Parenthood and very much pro-abortion. So it's an interesting study that uh, suggests that fetal pain may in fact be a factor much earlier than originally thought. Maureen Ferguson will join us to talk about that uh, also later this hour. And then for those of you who are having some difficulty keeping up with the latest thing, particularly parents, the Skull Breaker Challenge. We'll tell you what that's all about. It's going viral on TikTok. What on earth is TikTok, you may be wondering. We'll get into all of that later in the program. It's really quite dangerous, and so we want to give you a bit of a heads up for what uh, some teenagers are doing. It originated in Spain, but of course with the Internet, it doesn't matter where it started. It's uh, being uh, duplicated other places all around the world, and kids are, are harming themselves seriously as a consequence. That's later in the program. While Senate Republicans are in the final phase of their walkout presentations over the carbon bill, once again, the minority party, Republicans, uh, are preparing to walk out to deny a quorum as a vote on the controversial greenhouse gas emissions cap and trade bill draws near. And once again, it's being characterized as an emergency, which means taxpayers in the state of Oregon will not have an opportunity for two years to do anything about it. Some Republicans are in the final phases of preparing to leave the state and walk out from the Oregon legislature over that greenhouse gas emissions cap and trade bill or cap and tax, as it's also called. Two Republican senators confirmed to the Statesman Journal that several members of their caucus have identified locations to stay outside of the state of Oregon and have purchased or are in the process of purchasing plane tickets to get there. We're talking about Senate Bill 1530, expected to move from the Budget uh, Writing Ways and Means Committee on the Senate floor late ne- uh, this week, rather, or early next week. As soon as Ways and Means passes out 1530 to the full Senate, I think we'll walk. That's a quote from Senator Fred Garad of Staten. He's a Republican. It's for everyone to decide, but it will be enough to deny a quorum. Well, Democrats hold a supermajority of 18 members, but a walkout denies the Senate a two-thirds quorum of 20 needed to conduct any business on the floor. Senate Democratic leader Jenny Burdick from Portland said that Oregon voters sent each lawmaker to the Capitol to work on legislation, not leave the state for a taxpayer-funded vacation. I would add to that that they were also sent to be honest about whether or not a particular piece of legislation is an emergency or just a means by which uh, you deny Oregonians the opportunity to weigh in on a very uh, critical um, piece of legislation. 
Anyway, she went on to say that hardworking Oregonians do not have the ability to abandon their jobs and still get paid. They would be fired, she said in a statement. Why should senators be treated differently? Well, both Republican senators, along with a third, said each member is making the decision on whether to stay or walk based on what they believe their constituents want. During their nine-day walkout last year over a similar greenhouse gas emissions cap-and-trade bill a proposal, all 11 senators left. It was triggered by the bill uh, receiving a second reading in the Senate. Well, Gerard said that uh, they would not wait for a second reading this year. After a bill is read a second time, it must receive a vote of some nature on the Senate floor, which is what Republicans want to avoid. House Republicans... Um, are, again, contemplating doing something similar to what happened last time around. One Republican senator said that between three and seven of the 12 Senate Republicans are purchasing or have already purchased those tickets. Uh, They confirmed that the tickets are being purchased but did not know how many had done so. Everyone's kind of secreted, even within the caucus. We don't want people knowing where we're going. I know uh, where two senators are going, and that's it. He went on to say, I don't know how... Um, don't know where I'm going. Well, the Senate Republican office declined to confirm that senators have already purchased plane tickets. Staffer said many senators have been prepared to leave since the session began because the crap and cap and trade proposal would uh, be back for consideration. Well, Senate Bill 1530 would set gradually declining limits on statewide carbon emissions and create something of a slush fund. Create a marketplace for polluters to buy credits uh, or allowances for each ton of emissions they release annually. Republicans say the bill would increase the cost of living in rural Oregon and do little to combat climate change, while Democrats say cap and trade is the only way to reduce the state's carbon emissions and the bill has protections for rural Oregonians, but insufficient, according to Republicans. Cap and trade isn't the only policy being considered in the legislature this session. Session, rather, a walkout uh, threatens all bills still in the legislative process. It's caused concern on both sides of the aisle. Still, the 2019 walkout is considered a success among Republicans in the Capitol. A previous version of the cap and trade, House Bill 2020, died after losing Democratic support while Republicans were, well, away. Well, that walkout also rallied many rural Oregonians uh, to Republican side uh, through Timber Unity, which has continued through to the 2020 session, held a rally earlier this month or late last month, including a truck procession and rally of about 2,000 people at the Capitol earlier this month. Molly Woon, who's the deputy director of the Democratic Party of Oregon, said... The 2019 walk, or rather walk out, made Oregon a target of national ridicule. It also, uh, it's also not how democracy is supposed to work. Well, neither is labeling a bill an emergency when it's not, I would add. Well, the strategy is unpopular with voters, she went on to say. A January poll from the FM3 research showed that nearly 60% of Oregon voters oppose walkouts. Uh, the important thing here is that we know this isn't popular with voters, Wound said. Well, it depends on which voters and how the questions are asked. But Senate uh, Bill 1530 was sent to the Full Ways and Means Committee during a public hearing and work session late Wednesday. As of this morning, it did not have a hearing scheduled in that committee. Eleven of the 12 Republican senators were present for the floor session this uh, or Wednesday morning, I should say. Senator Alan Olson of Canby, a Republican, was the one absent Uh, He was excused by the Senate president for the remainder of this week for a legal hearing in Indiana. So that wasn't related to that particular piece of legislation. In other news, a federal court of appeals ruled that the World War II era 78-year-old Bayview Cross in Pensacola, Florida, does not violate the U.S. Constitution and will remain standing. 
The appeals court noted that it has become embedded in the fabric of the Pensacola community and that removing it could strike many as aggressively hostile to religion. In 1941, the National Youth Administration placed a wooden cross in Pensacola's Bayview Park to be the focal point of the annual Easter sunrise service. The sunrise service was held annually by the JCs. But in 1969, the original wooden cross was replaced by a 34-foot concrete version. That cross has been a popular gathering place for over 75 years and is a one of over 170 displays in Pensacola's parks commemorating the city's history and culture. In 2016, Freedom From Religion Foundation sued the city, claiming that the cross was offensive. It was a breach of the U.S. Constitution's separation of church and state and should be torn down. Well, in 2017... In the case Kondrats Yev versus City of Pensacola, a panel of judges on the Court of Appeals ruled that the cross must come down, with two of the three judges saying that the outcome was wrong, but that their hands were tied because of the so-called lemon test. Well, in 2019, the U.S. Supreme Court ordered the appeals court to reconsider its earlier ruling in light of its decision in the American Legion case that the Peace Cross, a 40-foot cross honoring those who died during World War I, can remain standing in Blandensburg, Maryland. In its 7-2 decision, the high court made it clear that the so-called lemon test was not useful for cases involving ceremonial, celebratory, or commemorative monuments that include religious imagery. Instead, the justices adopted a strong presumption of constitutionality for long-standing monuments. The ruling recognized that a government that roams the the, uh, the land, tearing down monu- monuments rather with religious uh, symbols and scrubbing away any reference to the divine will strike many as aggressively hostile to religion, which the Constitution does not require. This court said that although the cross is undoubtedly a Christian symbol, the cross does not offend the Constitution. The high court told the appeals court to apply these same principles to the cross in Pensacola. They have done so. And it will remain in place. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with Lois Anderson with Oregon Right to Life. The legislature is in session. Is there pro-life legislation? We'll also talk about the Oregon Right to Life conference coming up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, in case you haven't noticed, the legislature is in session. It's the short, short rather, 35-day session. Of course, a lot can be done in those 35 days if the lawmakers have a mind to do it. Uh, here to talk with us about what's happening in the uh, Oregon legislature from a pro-life perspective is Lois Anderson, executive director of Oregon Right to Life. We're also going to talk about their upcoming conference, Together We Advocate. So she'll um, fill us in on all these important details. Lois, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Georgine. Well, thank you for, for having me. Well, first, let's talk about what's happening in the legislature. This is a very short session, so what can uh, w- what's happening on the pro-life front? Well, yes, it is a very short session, and we're, we're pretty much halfway through. Mm-hmm. And um, what, we, what we're happy about is that um, your listeners will probably remember there were some very dangerous bills and legislation last session um, that were aimed at the end of life, that we fought back. Um, one bad one passed, but we were able to stop two bad ones. And we really thought that those were going to be back this session. And we chatted a little bit about that before it started. Those did not come back. So we're very thankful for that um, this session. We don't think that they're gone forever, but we were thankful that, that we, didn't, um, we didn't see them this session. 
But we we do always try to introduce pro-life legislation, even even if we think that the leadership is not going to pay attention to it or that, you know, the odds are against us. We feel very strongly that it's our responsibility to introduce the legislation and give everybody an opportunity um, to take a stand. And one of the ways that we can do that is to try to push for a hearing, a vote. And we've been doing that very consistently since the beginning of session on two bills, one in the House and one in the Senate. Um, And I particularly want to talk about the one in the Senate Uh today because um, we have some really wonderful pro-life senators who are looking for, there are a few um, procedural uh, acts that they can push for to get a vote on the um, Born Alive Infant Protection Act. Now, this is the law that mirrors um, what the U.S. Senate is working on and is probably going to vote on next week, which requires medical care for a child who has been born alive either during an abortion procedure or who has survived an abortion procedure. And um, this is very important legislation. It's a little bit unbelievable that we need it, but we do need it. And uh, we have uh, proposed that in the and we have, like I said, pro-life senators that are pushing for it. And what we need pro-life Oregonians to do is to email every single state senator. And we have a couple of, of ways that they can do that. And they need to do it in the next couple of days. Um, Georgie, you, know, you are probably know this. These guys, they hear from thousands of people on gun bills. They hear mm-hmm. from thousands of people on the cap and trade. They even hear from thousands of people on bills that have to deal with puppies and and horses. Now, I love animals, and um, there are other issues that I care about, but we need them to hear from thousands of Oregonians that babies who have survived abortions should be given medical care. And I just can't stress how important this is. Um, And like I said, we've given a couple of uh, tools, and many times we'll ask people to only only email their own um, senator or representative. But this time, we really, just the nature of what's going on at the Capitol this time, we really need people to just email every single one of them. Um, And so they can go on our website and um, click on the Action Alert tab, or they can go on Facebook, and there's uh, instructions, there's ideas for what to say, and um, all of the email addresses are listed there, and people can basically just copy and paste it. Yeah, it's a it's a wonderful way to communicate. I think we sometimes forget that when you're talking about a state legislature, the constituent base is much smaller than, for example, a representative in uh, if, uh, in Washington. And uh, if if you um, communicate with your lawmaker, you have sort of an outsized uh, influence on uh, or certainly access on what they are likely to do or at least consider. So it's really important. And your ability to influence, I think, is much greater than we um, anticipate uh, because of the uh, the size of the legislature. So again, you can go to ortl.org and look for the action tab to uh, to do just that. You guys have made it so easy uh, to express our pro-life sentiment in a constructive way. Now, in addition to that, I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about the upcoming conference. This is the largest pro-life conference in uh, in our area this year. Together we advocate. Tell us a bit about the conference and why we should go. Well, uh, yeah, we're very excited. It's next Saturday on Leap Day, um, which is kind of unique. <laughs> but uh, we, the our for our conferences, we try to bring in 
Um, a few speakers that are nationally known, um, many times we'll get a couple of speakers, and that's the case this year as well, who have just spoken at the March for Life or events surrounding March for Life in Washington, D.C. So we're going to kick off the conference and um, with Claire Caldwell and Josiah Presley. Both of them are abortion survivors, and they have amazing, impactful stories. And um, Claire did speak at the March for Life. Claire and Josiah both spoke at a Family Research Council event. So it's exciting to have them come here and um, speak. And then we're also going to uh, be featuring a woman who uh, left an abortion clinic, gave her child up for, abor uh, for adoption, and then was able to meet her son years later. And uh, Louisiana Right to Life actually produced a really wonderful film about her story. So we're going to show the film during lunch. Um, for those that haven't seen it, it's called I Lived on Parker Avenue. And then uh, Melissa Coles, who is the mom, the birth mom, is going to speak to us. And, um, and then we're going to wrap up the day with Dr. Anthony Levitino, who is a former abortion provider who has testified before Congress. He's done these very impactful videos for live action. Uh, he also has an amazing story of how he went from doing abortions to fighting against them. So we're, we're excited. And then in the meantime, that's not all. Um, but wait, between, there's more. <laughs> wait, there's more. In between those amazing, wonderful sessions, we have um, 12 different workshops that are um, both national and local um, subject experts, everything from adoption to advanced directives, protecting your loved ones um, at the end of their life. Um, or at any time in their life. We've talked about that before. And then um, assisted suicide, abortion, um, uh, healing after abortion. We have a student, um, our Students for Life regional coordinator is going to be talking about how to organize on campus. Uh, we're going to actually have a session about how to run for office at the local level for city council and, and school board. That's a brand new workshop that we haven't had before. So lots of exciting things. And then there's also exhibitors and there's time to fellowship with pro-lifers from all over Oregon and Southwest Washington. It's just a really great day. And it is, um, we are able to keep the cost low for registrants um, for such a wonderful day by the fact that we have great sponsors who, who help us with the cost. So it's only $50 for the day, and that includes your lunch. Oh, that's incredible. This year it's at Rolling Hills Community Church in Tualatin. Um, you can go to the website if you need lodging nearby. And again, we're talking about uh, Saturday, February 29th, 8.45, the first general session, uh, the last general session at 4, so it's a, a day-long event. Uh, be prepared because you're going to be um, have access to some great information, encouraging fellowship with other like-minded pro-lifers from the Pacific Northwest. And uh, again, this is the, the largest event of its kind in our area and a great opportunity to be equipped, encouraged, challenged, and all of those things and inspired. Uh, Lois, I so appreciate that Oregon Right to Life continues to provide this opportunity uh, for residents in our community uh, to be um, informed and equipped and, again, uh, just encouraged. Well, thank you, Georgine. It's a, we love putting on the event, and it really is, the purpose of it is not to just to have wonderful speakers, but it really is to do exactly that, to encourage and equip people 
for to go in their communities and um, act their pro-life values in the way that makes the most sense in their families and their churches and communities and that's what we what we work for and what what we hope for. Absolutely. Well, Lois, thank you so much for uh, talking with us, and we'll certainly encourage our listeners to check out the conference on the website. And don't forget to email those senators. Absolutely, a good point. <laughs> All of that can be done at ortl.org. That's for Oregon Right to Life. Ortl.org. So check it out today. Thanks, Lois. Thank you, Georgine. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Coming up, we're going to talk with Maureen Ferguson. She's with the Catholic Association. Uh, Lois mentioned a moment ago that the Senate is likely to take up the issue of the pain capable of, uh, act in uh, the next few days. We'll talk with Maureen Ferguson about what's happening in Washington, as well as a groundbreaking study on fetal pain. All of that when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the U.S. Senate is scheduled to vote on the pro-life pain-capable bill next week. It would prohibit abortion after a baby can feel pain. There's some controversy over whether or not or when a child in utero can feel pain. We're going to talk about that in just a moment, as well as a new study that just happens to coincide with all of this. It comes out of the U.K., and it found that unborn babies may feel pain as early as 13 weeks rather than the 24 uh, that has been um, argued uh, in the past. Joining us to talk about all of that is Maureen Ferguson. She's with the Catholic Association on these uh, two developments. Thank you so much for joining us. It's nice to have you back. Hi there. It's great to be on with you. Well, let's begin with the Senate that's scheduled to vote on the pro-life pain-capable bill next week. Um, This bill is designed to acknowledge that the physiology of a developing human in utero has the capacity to feel pain, and therefore uh, that should be taken into consideration when the heinous practice of abortion is undertaken on these children in utero. Is that a fair explanation, and can you fill that out? Yes. So this bill that the Senate will vote on next week essentially is a ban on abortion in the second half of pregnancy. So this bill says that after 20 weeks, uh, abortion would not be allowed except if it was necessary to save the life of the mother. Um, And it's based on the medical evidence that babies at this stage, which is 20 weeks, 20 weeks is about halfway through pregnancy, The medical evidence that babies at this uh, point in pregnancy are developed enough that they can feel pain. So based on, you know, the inhumanity of aborting a child at that stage of development, um, that's the, the premise of this bill. And there's been a lot of science and a lot of research that shows that the baby by 20 weeks feel pain. Now, the abortion lobby has contested this. They say, oh, the baby doesn't really feel pain until about 24 weeks. Now, first of all, that's a pretty weak response because they're still against banning abortion after 24 weeks. But but so they admit that the baby can experience pain. They just say, oh, it's about four weeks later. Of course, they still want to allow abortion then. But what's giving sort of new life to this bill, because the Senate has voted on this bill before, is, as you mentioned, this new study out of the United Kingdom. Now, it has been thought that um, uh, developmental neuroscience, uh, which is focusing on the um, level and rate of development at which point a, a child in utero is thought to experience pain, 
uh, and that the 24 weeks has been what the argument where they've fallen in the past. This UK study suggests that there seems to be evidence that a child could feel pain uh, much sooner than that. Now, you and I would agree that abortion, whether or not it is physically painful to a child, should not be permitted for a variety of reasons. But for the sake of this bill and our conversation, uh, they're now arguing that um, fetal pain can be experienced much sooner. Can you help help us understand what this UK study is uh, is telling us? That's right. So as I said, there for a long time, there's been all kinds of evidence that the unborn child can experience pain. In fact, if uh, if neonatal surgery is being done, because sometimes they do surgery on the developing mm-hmm. baby in the womb to correct an anomaly, they would always give the baby uh, anesthesia before doing that in utero surgery. So, so there's long been a recognition that the baby can feel pain, but there's a new uh, study out of Great Britain, and I think the reason this study is getting attention and is more significant is because it was led by a pro-choice researcher. He's a, a British pain expert. I mean, he's a doctor, and that's that's his expertise, and he has a proven pro-choice track record. He used to consult for the British Planned Parenthood and the pro-choice forum of the UK. So here you have a pro-abortion doctor saying, you know, I used to think that babies couldn't really, that the fetus couldn't really experience pain, but now he's a uh, uh, co-leader leading the research And he has concluded that the baby can experience pain and potentially as early as 13 weeks. So much earlier than people have acknowledged before. And the the authors of this study said that it flirts with moral recklessness to allow abortion at this stage. And he says that women ought to be informed that the fetus might be able to experience the pain of the abortion. Now, given the findings of this latest study, and abortion on demand as it's understood in this country at this point. Uh, If senators are convinced that fetal pain is um, a phenomenon that uh, should be considered in determining when a woman can have an abortion uh, in this particular legislation at 20 weeks, what are the implications uh, moving forward considering uh, fetal pain at much earlier stages? And is the debate likely to shift to how do we reduce the pain or how do we protect the life of a a sentient child in utero? Well, I sure hope it's the latter. Mm -hmm. I hope the debate shifts to, it's, you know, all evidence and recognition of the humanity of the unborn child. So I hope the reaction is not to say, oh, just anesthetize the baby before, Mm -hmm. you know, termination. I, I hope the response is one of human compassion saying we need to protect these developing human beings and we need to outlaw this brutality. Um, and, and so one of the things your listeners will hear next week, if they tune in at all to this debate over late-term abortion next week, you're going to hear, number one, the abortion lobby and pro-abortion senators will say, oh, these late-term abortions are so rare. This isn't really an issue. Well, guess what? There are at least 12,000 late-term abortions every year in the country, 12,000. Now, because there are so many abortions, it represents only about one and a a third percent of all abortions that are done after 20 weeks. But but that is a huge number. It's a huge number because there are so many abortions. Mm -hmm. So there are at least 12,000 abortions done after 20 weeks. 12,000 little human babies aborted every year. 
um, after the 20-week stage. The other thing that you'll hear from the abortion lobby and pro-abortion senators is, oh, these late-term abortions are only done in the most tragic of cases where, you know, the life of the mother is at risk or the baby has some severe disability. So, first of all, that's actually not true. Sadly, women seek later abortions for generally the same reasons as they seek earlier abortions, whether they're in poverty or they're abandoned by a boyfriend or have an abusive boyfriend or um, a lot of times the, they delay making a decision about what to do with this unplanned pregnancy until they're in the second half of pregnancy. So most of these later-term abortions, sadly, are elective. And in the very small number of cases where there is a real maternal health problem, once you have a viable baby, once it's late in pregnancy, you can separate the mother and child by sending the baby to the NICU. By delivering the baby prematurely, the baby can go to the NICU and the mother can get whatever health care she needs. Um, so, so there's never a need to kill the child in order to save the mother at this stage of pregnancy because the child can be delivered alive as a preemie and go to the neonatal intensive care unit. Now, the other case that is cited are those really sad cases where the baby um, has some uh, severe disability. Um, we also know that uh, frequently people choose to abort, sadly, Down syndrome children, which is not even a severe disability. That's just a beautiful state of some human beings. Um, but in the cases where there is a severe disability with the baby, um, I guess the answer there is that, listen, we're a compassionate country. We passed the Americans with Disabilities Act. Like, we love and cherish disabled children in this country. We don't say they should be terminated, right? So why, just because they haven't quite been born yet, is it okay to terminate a disabled child? Like, I thought the humane and compassionate thing to do is to take care of a disabled child. And that is what, you know, ought to be done in the United States, which is a compassionate country. Are you optimistic about what will happen in the Senate next week? Um, I think there'll be a very good debate. Um, you say, am I optimistic in, I guess, do I think it's going to become law? I don't think it is this year because the Democrats, and Nancy Pelosi control the House of Representatives. So the House of Representatives will not pass it. Mm -hmm. And then sadly, in the Senate, I think the Democrats are going to filibuster this bill. So the Republicans do not have enough votes to overcome a filibuster. Um, but so sadly, what's going to happen is the Democrats in Congress are going to block it. I hate to be, you know, give a spoiler as to what's going to happen next week, but that would be my prediction the f that sadly this bill will be blocked by the Democrats. Well, the fact that it's being considered, I suppose, is something of a victory. And as the march of science and research continues, it will become even more clear uh, what we're talking about when we're talking about the, the child in utero. And one can only hope and pray and work very hard uh, to see to it that at some point in the future, if not this uh, this time around, uh, these children are given the right to life that they deserve. Uh, thank you, Maureen Ferguson. I appreciate what you do, and I appreciate your talking with us here today. Sure. Good to be on with you. Again, Maureen Ferguson is with the Catholic Association, talking about the upcoming pro-life vote in the Senate and the new groundbreaking study on fetal pain out of the U.K. by a uh, former 
uh, associate of Planned Parenthood and a very pro-abortion um, scientist and doctor. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Tomorrow, as you well know, is Friday. And so we're going to spend a considerable portion of the day focusing on the lighter side of the news. I hope you'll join us for that. Well, there's a new um, viral challenge going on. It's called the Skull Breaker Challenge. Now, the name alone should discourage you from trying it, but it's apparently going viral on TikTok. And doctors are warning that this um, viral challenge is dangerous. The Skull Breaker Challenge. Now, again, seems pretty obvious. Anyway, this new online viral trend called the Skull Breaker Challenge is so dangerous that medical experts are warning teenagers to resist the urge to try it. Well, the challenge originated in Spain after two students recorded themselves on TikTok performing the stunt. Now, you might be asking, TikTok, what's that? It's another social media platform. Well, the challenge involves three participants standing next to each other in a row before jumping straight up. And while the middle person is in the air, the other two individuals on each end kick inward to knock the middle person off balance and subsequently hit his or her head when they fall on their back to the ground. Now, I don't know about you, but this just sounds like a lot of fun. You know, when I go home tonight, I might uh, have my mom come out and have Dan Rice. And we might just try this. I mean, what, what about this would be appealing to anyone? And let me explain again what this whole thing is about. That's going viral, originating uh, from Spain. Three people. They jump straight up. The middle person, while that individual is still in the air, the other two individuals, one on each side, kicks inward to knock the middle person off balance. They hit their head when they fall on their back to the ground. I'm having a hard time. What's appealing about this? I mean, don't you spend your whole life trying to avoid falling, running into things, hitting your head? Well, since the original video went viral, other daring teens have replicated the risky act. Wow. Doctors and parents are now sounding the alarm on the Skull Breaker Challenge for obvious reasons. There's a reason people are called minors and adults. You know, the transition is supposed to lend itself to more mature thinking process. But anyway, doctors and parents are, are sounding the alarm. One Arizona mother, uh, Valerie Hodson, told uh, or rather took to Facebook or book earlier this month to share harrowing images of her son who was a victim of the malicious, cruel, viral prank. Now, my understanding is you volunteer to be the middle person, knowing what the whole thing's about, but she said her son was left with a head injury, stitches in his face, and severe cuts in his mouth. He apparently fell forward. He landed hard flat on his back and head, apparently on his back. As he struggled to get up, he lost consciousness. He fell forward, landing on his face. Well, that explains those injuries. She explained that the school monitor ran to his side all the while uh, the two boys were snickering and laughing as his stiff, unconscious body lay on the asphalt. Now, that that's entertainment. You know the old song, that's entertainment. Here you go. This is entertainment. You sabotage your friend who may not fully comprehend what's about to happen. And then when he is rendered unconscious and bleeding... <laughs> just stand by and laugh. Oh, boy. I can hardly wait to go home and tell my 89-year-old mother and my now-retired husband that that's what we're going to do tonight. The Skull Breaker Challenge. Well, the mom said, James, you want to get in on this? Is that what you're, you seem to be indicating that you're interested? Oh, I'm interested in seeing you do it. <laughs> 
Uh, says the mom, I really contemplated posting this, but I feel there needs to be awareness. Well, days later, a mother in Alabama, she posted a similar warning to the Facebook community. Terry Wimmer Smith said her son, Parker, suffered two broken bones in his wrist and would have surgery after he, too, was pranked. So apparently the third person is not aware of what all is going to happen. Now, parents, teach your kids that this stuff, she uses a different word, is happening, she wrote. Well, Dr. Nathan Richards is a physician, and he specializes in internal medicine and pediatrics at The Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center. And he said the challenge is potentially fatal. The skull breaker challenge is an emerging prank being propagated on social media that results in forceful trauma to the head and neck area. The doctor said he was uh, communicating with Yahoo Lifestyle. It can be associated with a variety of serious and even life-threatening injuries, including, but not limited to, bruising, hematoma, skull fracture, neck strain, neck fracture, concussion, long-term complications of concussion, bleeding in and around the brain, loss of consciousness, paralysis, and death. And by the way, I'll return on Friday and let you know which one, first of all, which one of us ended up in the middle and which one of these injuries, if not all, occurred as a consequence of this Really funny form of entertainment, the Skull Breaker Challenge. Well, he added that although it can seem like a harmless prank to children and adolescents, they should be educated on the potentially serious consequence of doing the challenge. Paralysis and possible death. That was on that list. Well, one psychologist, Dr. Sabrina Sykes, she points out in a blog post that viral challenges offer teenagers instant popularity among their peers in the form of likes and followers, which isn't quite the same as having actual relationship in which people choose to associate with you because they find that you're compatible. So likes and follows, not quite there. Providing peer acceptance, buoying the teen's self-concept, and therefore enhancing the draw to participate in these challenges. Parents should familiarize themselves with social media platforms and engage their teen in conversation about online challenges. And how you would keep up with this, I could not tell you because they are emerging all the time. And as I mentioned earlier, this one originated in Spain. How would you even you know, know this thing suddenly pops up unless you're hanging out on TikTok, which I'm guessing most adults either would not find favorable or wouldn't have the time Uh, Anyway, she added, remember that while teens continue to grow and navigate social relationships through these conversations, parents can foster the development of thoughtful and rational thinking skills while also maintaining connection. So by all means, try to foster thoughtful and rational thinking skills in your teen to avoid this latest viral challenge, Skull Breaker. Wow, this is going to go over real big tonight when I get home. Once again, tomorrow is Friday. We're going to lighten up just a bit. We'll also share with you headline news and our interview of the week. So I hope you'll join us. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering, and James engineering a portion of today's program as well. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.